so next thing I know, they take me in there. I was conscious again. Next thing I know, I felt a needle, and then I don't recall whatever happened after that. I woke up three days late. So you lost most of your jaw, your bottom jaw. Lost 80% of my jaw, 24 teeth, lower lip, 20% of my tongue. You could tell. I, I just know that my, you my knew face, you were hurt. yeah, I knew my face was on fire. Start recording. Test, test. Say something. Test, test. Perfect. Thank you for joining us on Longest War. I know there's many truths about war, so if you could just tell me a truth about war, just from your perspective. We withdrew and became isolated because we were called liars. We were told that, that that didn't happen. This is going to be a really great episode. I'm joined today by Andy Niggett, who is a, I would say former Marine. There's no such thing, right? Once Marine, always a Marine. That's correct. Marine Vietnam veteran uh, of 1968, correct? Correct. MOS? 0331 M60 machine gunner. Yes. We don't have those anymore because they're too heavy. They'll, they'll lay the hate down when you need they, them. They can put out some firepower. Yeah, but they're just too damn heavy for us now. Okay. You know, us millennials, we don't like to carry heavy <laughs> stuff. We, we like lighter ballistic weapons. So I guess we'll start with your background. You're a native of Pittsburgh. I'm, yeah, I'm a native actually from Turtle Creek. You come from a military family. I do. My father was a uh, Marine Corps veteran. He served in World War II, wounded at Iwo Jima. So father... World War II, Iwo Jima Marine, did not want you to join the Marine Corps. Is that correct? Absolutely not. Uh, which was the irony, Nick, because if you knew my father, he was a very patriotic man uh, who always was involved with Veterans Affairs, commander of the VFW, state inspector for the VFW. Every opportunity he had to wear that uniform, he would until it was time for his son, who wanted to join the Marine Corps right after high school. And a couple of issues with that. My parents wanted me to go to college. I was fortunate enough to have athletic scholarships to go to college, but I did not want to go. So I declined that opportunity, told my parents I wanted to join the Marine Corps. My father opposed it, and he convinced me not to go. And he said, I'm going to get you a job at Westinghouse. He was an electrician at Westinghouse. He then got me a job at Westinghouse, but he didn't want me working in blue collar. He wanted me to be an office person, so he got me a job in the office. That lasted less than a year. I turned 19, and without my parents knowing it, I went and enlisted in the Marine Corps and then notified them that I enlisted. So, so what year did you graduate high school? 67. 67. So and then 68, I went into the Marine Corps. Let's say you had graduated in 78 or 58, do you think he would have felt the same way if we had not been in the middle of a conflict? Absolutely correct. Uh, he was proud of me being a Marine. He did not want me involved in a war. Because he had seen the futility and the ugliness and all that stuff from Without a doubt, from Iwo Jima. Without a doubt. Was he drafted? No. He, he enlisted. He enlisted. He enlisted. So let's talk about the day you come home and you say, hey, hey, Pops. <laughs> I got great news for you. I enlisted in the Corps. He was n not happy. He tried to explain to me that 
that was not in my best interest, that he wanted me to pursue my education, uh, and it was not the best time to enlist in the, any service at that time. And it fell on deaf ears. It did. It did. And what upset him even more, and he always had Mason a hole for not me not serving in the military because I was a sole survivor at that time. I was the last male to carry on the naked name. So at that time, I would not have to serve. I so would they not, couldn't draft you? They, I, no, they couldn't draft me at all. And even if I enlisted, I could have got out. Did you choose your MOS? They chose it for me. After boot camp, so many were assigned to different MOSs. I got selected to go to Camp Lejeune to train as an M60 machine gunner. Uh, then after that, I went to Camp Pendleton for guerrilla warfare training and also advanced M60 machine gun because I wanted to be a gunner on a chopper. And that's what I thought I was going to be. And when I got to Vietnam... They assigned me uh, to with the unit out in the field, and I tried to explain <laughs> I was I was supposed to be on a helicopter M60, and my sergeant major said, "When you put your time in and you earn it," and his words at that time, "If you make it long enough." So, and you're 19 at this. I point. was 19 at that time. So you finish your training, you come back to Pittsburgh for some time off. I had 30 days before leaving for Vietnam. And is that when you met your wife? That's uh, when I met Mary Kay, yes. Okay. That is correct. And you guys casually dated a bit at the time? We did. We did. Just for that month, we went out on a few dates. We were introduced by a mutual friend and that. Then Mary Kay went off to college. I went off to Vietnam, and that was okay with me because I really didn't want any type of relationship back in the States while I was gone. Right. Distraction, all, a host of reasons why you wouldn't want. When I arrived in Vietnam and I got to know my brothers over there who were married, then it was so difficult on them. You get to Vietnam in 68. What month? Got there at the end of July 68. You're still 19 or you turned 20? I was at that still point? 19. Still yes. 19 years old. Still 19. I was assigned to the 1st Marine Division, 2nd Battalion, 5th Regiment. So you touch down, you get assigned to your unit. At this point, what is your opinion of the war in Vietnam? Well, when I arrived in my rear and then wall, nothing was happening right then. But within a couple of nights, then every night, they were trying to infiltrate our rear. So they were trying to get through the Constantine wire. So all throughout the nights, battles would erupt. At that point, Nick, I realized, Dad, I understand. And I really did at that point. I understand. What he was trying to keep you yep. out of. What was, what was your overarching feeling about the war? Like, were you excited to go to Vietnam? Absolutely, absolutely. So you I, believed in it? Oh, believed you in it. You thought it was a just... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, uh, four of us enlisted together. Three of them went to the Navy. I went to Marine Corps. But I believed in it. It's something I wanted to do. I got to be a Marine. I got to go to war. So how long was a Marine's tour for Vietnam? 13 months. 13 months. Yes. So you got there in July... You weren't there that long? Nope. I was there less than five months, four so, and a half months, October 9th. You get to your unit. Tell me about the so the first couple of nights were okay, and then they started right. to then every night, attack the wire. Every and night. And then we were supposed to remain at the rear to get our more instructions and, uh, and that. But there was 
so many losses occurring at that time out in the field that we were all sent out in the field, and that's when I was assigned to the unit out there. We were supposed to— So you were supposed to get more training before you went out. Yeah, and get acclimated to the weather, and what you do is all day long you would fill sandbags and build bunkers, and that was primarily to get you acclimated to the weather. To make you sweat. Absolutely. You know, build up endurance and tolerance for the hot weather. Uh, and how hot is it in July and where you were at? July, it's it's over 100. It's over 100, 110. It's, it's, it's hot. It's and I'm hot. guessing they did not have air conditioning in your tent. Back <laughs> <laughs> Only if you open the flap. Yeah. <laughs> That's about it. Do they have any sort of, like, did the officers, did they have, uh, like... Well, what I know, not, no, not man wall, but what I understand, like where the computers were, the Nang and those bases, and where a lot of the uh, the higher level officers were, yeah, they had air conditioners. They needed air conditioners back then for the computers. Right, right, back in the olden days. That's it. That is it. And those were some big computers back then. What was it like getting to your unit out in the field? Well, when I got out into the field, there wasn't much of an adjustment or transition period because two five was always in it. They were always in the hot zones. So my first arrival there... And 2-5 is 2nd Battalion, 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines. Marines. Yeah. We are pride with that unit. The 5th Regiment, if you just would Google 5th Regiment or anything, it's the most highly decorated unit in the history of the Marine Corps. Do you know Mm -hmm. what regiment your dad was in? 4th. He was in the 4th. He was 4th Marine Division. So not quite as accomplished as the fifth, uh, but pretty close. They right? were quite accomplished at Iwo Jima. They were quite, yeah. The Fourth Marine Division really, uh, they um, they saw their share. So when you get to your unit, you're coming in as a replacement soldier or a replacement Marine. I, I was just coming in to join the unit because they were they were losing a lot of the men, and uh, so I was assigned there. I was real naive. You and know. that's when you got your M60? We got our M60, and I was assigned to a four-person, four-man unit, you know? So we had uh, we had our gunner, our assistant gunner, and two of us, two others. And that's what we were assigned to. And what was your, were you, would you set up Overwatch positions or ambushes, or what did you guys do? Well, what we did was, the M60 gunner team is real unique, because anytime you're on patrol, you're in the middle, you know? So you're covered by the rear both flanks and the front. They protect you well. You have riflemen surrounding you until a battle ensues. Then you are sent up front to lay, lay down your firepower. And they put you in the middle intentionally, right? So you're Absolutely. not the first so you're hit, prote- but they don't exactly, want you to go down because if exactly, you go down, yeah, everyone no. goes down. No. No, it's, it's like your radio operator, your corpsman. You're all in the middle. Who decides who's the point, man? You just draw short straws? I never walk point. No? Never, never. How did they determine who it was going to be? Was it a different person each troll? Usually platoon sergeant determined that. And it was whoever it was. was on his shit list at the time? Probably on that. And um, and unfortunately, you know, um, many of them didn't survive. So it was just a rotation and um, who the platoon sergeant thought that would be the best. So I've spoken to many vets over the last couple of years with Veterans Breakfast Club, and I've asked them all the same question. Everyone has given me the exact same answer. Of yes, and that is, do you remember the first time someone shot at you directly? Absolutely. And what was that feeling like? Mixed. It was um, fear, a lot of fear. And then you learn that the fear is always with you, but I think all of us as warriors transition into the warrior. Without that transition, 
we wouldn't survive. A human being cannot survive war. Cannot. Absolutely. Cannot. Not possible. So you transition into the warrior mentality. But there's still that underlying fear, but it's more suppressed, Nick. It, it's, it's not on the forefront. It's there, but it doesn't prohibit you from performing your duty. So you got there in late July. When do you estimate your first firefight in the field was? Oh, it would be the first week of August. Oh, so soon. Oh, oh, oh yeah. As soon as, I, as soon as I went out with my unit, they were in it. Golf company was always in the hot zone. Did you take any casualties during that first firefight? Yeah, absolutely. At that point, you had already like realized your father was right. right. At that point, were you like, shit, I should have listened to him? No. No? No. You still wanted to be there? Still wanted to be there. Still young, I think, still naive. So I still wanted to be there. Those feelings evolved as I began questioning why I was there. But then what I determined was that I'm not sure it was about the war anymore, but I was determined to be there for my brothers. It, was, it became now survival and to protect my brothers I served with. So first week of August, your first firefight, you're wounded on October 6th for the first October time. My, October 6th, first time. Very Two months without getting hit? That's a pretty good <laughs> run. <laughs> Yeah. That's yeah. not bad. That's Yeah. Well, considering, Nick, um, and I just verified, it, it's funny because I always have to check my facts. And I was there. Sure. But I questioned myself. And that's why the book I showed you, Chuck Van Bibber's book, I always read his documentation. And that's why he waited till 2013 to write the book so that he had access to all the declassified information so his book would be accurate. But to put in perspective for you, uh, by October 6th, our company, which was probably 120 that went out into the field in August, by October 6th, we had 59 men remaining. Out of how many? Out of the 110. 110. 120. 120, I'm sorry. So that's, that's 51% casualty rate. I mean, that's, that's what we had left. And that's not just casualty rate. That's catastrophic casualty rate. That's, yeah. So your actual casualty rate of all wounded, even yeah. guys that stayed in the fight, was much higher than that. Much higher. That was it. But yeah, because October 6th, we, we came off of Operation Mamaluke, took heavy casualties there. Uh, then October 6th, by then, that's when we only had 59 remaining in our company. And that's when we engaged a regiment of North Vietnamese Army regulars and Chinese up in the mountains. Were you on patrol or were you coming we were, back from We somewhere? were... Well, our orders were to take, take that hill. Vietnam was interesting. You were ordered to take that hill, and the next day you would abandon that hill. Right. Never to be seen again. Did you have more support than the 59 of you that were remaining to take the hill? We didn't. October 6th, we thought that we had taken control of the hill. But to learn later that the NDA allowed us to take it because— at the end of the day on October 6th and the morning of October 7th, we realized that we were surrounded by an entire regiment who were— They set up an ambush. Yeah, well, and they were buried into the mountains where literally it was a city with hospitals, everything. There'd be sniper fire all day long, all day long. We, would, we couldn't get supplies in. We couldn't get food. We couldn't get water because every time the choppers tried to come in, they would— send artillery up so couldn't get in and then uh, that went on october 7th 
all day October 8th. And the morning of October 9th, they got tired of it. And then literally at sunrise, they just came from every side of that hill. That was it. So on October 6th, how were you wounded the first time? October 6th, it was a, uh, I'm embarrassed to say it was a wound. You know, I, I, I don't even know how that Purple Heart got sent to me because we were going up the hill. And it's unusual. It's usually the Viet Cong who had chai comms. And they're just, they're just an archaic grenade. It is like, I think the Navy has more power. And they were throwing them down. That is not like them. The NVA and Chinese, which the Chinese were actually there despite what this government stated for so many decades. The Russians were involved. Russian MiG fighters were involved. Uh, and then the NVA Army regulars, to this day, I take my hat off to them. They were hardcore warriors. And it was unlikely that they had chai comms, but they had the big heavy weapons. Yeah. But a chai comm came down, it exploded, and I took some shrapnel in the arms. Uh, we took so many casualties that day, I wasn't even considered a, a wounded. Uh, Did you bandage yourself they, up? Well, the, the corpsman came over and just, you know, he cleaned it, and then bandaged it, cleaned it up, made sure the shrapnel was uh, and went on. We took so many casualties. So it was so insignificant, as I say. And uh, I, don't, I wouldn't even need treatment, really, I don't think. But for some reason, that got documented, and that Purple Heart was sent to me. October 9th is this Purple Heart that was earned. By this point, by October 9th, had your feelings about the war changed? Yeah, it, it, it did. Uh, we were getting indicators from the Vietnamese people as you go through villages. You know, you could tell they just had hatred for us. We were invading their country. They did not want us there. Uh, and so many inconsistencies with, uh, as I say, you take a heel, then you walk away from it. There was no real purpose that we could determine what that purpose was. And I think then collectively, we started to develop the same ideology that, you know what, we have to get each other out of here. And I'm going to be here, I'm fighting for my brother. What the war is about, don't know, but... We're going to fight for our brother. So you mentioned like Russian MiGs and Chinese yeah. soldiers. Like, had you figured out at that point that like this was a proxy war? I don't know if I figured that out yet. Or were you just too busy trying to stay alive? Exactly, yeah. You know, you were so preoccupied with that. And so you didn't give a lot of thought about the purpose of the war, what was going on in the war, other than trying to survive, keep your brother alive. But to us, the, the, the Russians and the Chinese were just part of the NDA army, you know, I mean, they were support, just like, just like the Australians supported us, you know. Um, they were over there with us, so, you know, you didn't give that much thought, Nick, at the time. Uh, I was still very naive about the politics of the war. Sure. So talk about October 9th for me. October 9th. Um, let's see, it was October, morning of October 8th was a real challenge because there's, there's two gun teams, four men in each team. The morning of the 8th, when sunrise, we were all called together to see what was going on. The, our, four, our team of four who had the other gun did not report. And to this day, I don't know what happened. 
nor does anyone know in my unit what happened, that all four were killed. So somehow the NDA came up there during the night. How they got there, I don't know. We had claymores all around the perimeter. Did you find the bodies? Oh, yeah. They were in, they were in the foxhole. Did they have... Did they? Did the NBA take the M60 that they had? No. They left it? Yep. That was it. So then it started escalating on the 8th uh, of more attacks. And then the mortars started coming in of, besides just the um, small round fire. But October 9th, as soon as sunrise, then that's when from every side of that mountain, they literally walked up. We were encountering small arms fire, mortars, RPG rockets. So the guns were set up, the M60s were set up. It made it difficult because now we had our men intertwined with the NVA and Chinese. And so where are you going to put the firepower out? It's, you, it's easy when you have a, a, a tree line out there or a designated... Some linear. And, yes, exactly. All I could remember is just all hell broke loose. Many getting killed, many wounded, and we were trying to put out some firepower with the 60. Then an RPG landed, and that's when I got hit. All I remember is I got hit. I felt my body just through the air. When I landed, I was still conscious. And... Um, I laid there and I was panicking because I couldn't breathe. And my face felt like someone was taking a flamethrower to it. And all I could feel was blood on my face and over me. And how I maintain conscious, consciousness, I don't know. But then I was able to reach up and what was blocking my airway was bone from my jaw and teeth. And I cleared my airway because it's just chaos going on, chaos. And I'm screaming for help. Nothing's coming out of my mouth. I'm screaming for help. Finally, Corman came over, and one of my guys, in fact, he lives in North Huntington, and we still are close. He was, my, he was on my, in my team. He dragged me over, and the Corman was trying to attend to me. He cleared my airway. Chaos is going on. And finally, we started getting support coming in. Ground support and air support. The, the, now you have the helicopters, our choppers coming in with the M60s, and they're starting to put down some fire and trying to disperse them. And the ground troops now were coming in up the hill behind. And again, a very precarious situation because we're still up there. The NDA is between, and Chinese, between us and the, the support it's a crossfire. Uh, yeah, real concern. Yeah, and it, yeah, so it was there. At that time, it wasn't concerned me. I was down. Right. You know. So I felt panic. And then what I recall is a real calm coming over me. And I just got calm and I laid there. But the first thought that came to my mind, which normally you would think, am I going to die? My thought was, what did I just do to my parents? That was my first thought. What did I just do to them? Then I, I must have lost consciousness. I forgot. I, I don't remember. I remember regaining consciousness on the helicopter, on the medevac, back to NSA Denang Hospital. And I could only see out of one eye at the time. 
it was amazing. When the choppers landed at the MSA hospital, I looked out and all these people are just lined up in a row to the stretcher. And they just had such organization. They'd walk up, put you on the stretcher, run you in the triage, put you on, they were horses. You know, it was a stretcher and they just put you on horses. Then some came in and they would just, just cut off your boots and start cutting off your clothes and then start triaging people. Uh, and then I would lose consciousness and regain consciousness. Were you in pain? I was in a lot of pain. Did they give you morphine or anything? I don't know. I don't know, Nick. I mean, I, what I do remember is someone coming over, and all I could remember is seeing a scalpel. And next thing I know, I just felt pain in my throat. So they put in a uh, tracheostomy so I could breathe. I was in pain. face was on fire. Then they inserted the, the trach. And I'm laying there, and then I looked at this room, and there's these two doors with a window, and there's all these doctors and nurses looking out. So next thing I know, they take me in there. I was conscious again. Next thing I know, I felt a needle, and then I don't recall any whatever happened after that. I woke up three days later. So you lost most of your jaw, your bottom jaw. Lost 80% of my jaw, 24 teeth, lower lip, 20% of my tongue. And you knew that when you went to clear it out, you could tell. I had no idea what the injuries were. I I just know that my face... You knew you were hurt. Yeah, I knew my face was on fire. I had no idea what injuries were sustained, the, the, the extent of them. All I know is I was hit in the face. So I went to MSA hospital, and uh, three days later, I woke up, uh, which was always to add insult to injury on my parents' wedding anniversary. <laughs> yeah, happy anniversary, Mom and Dad. You know, first I come over here, get wounded. Now I'm helping you celebrate you yeah. because they keep getting reports. What the Marine Corps does, and I'm not sure about the other branches of service, Nick, but what the Marine Corps does at that time is if you're seriously wounded, then they actually send an officer and then list of personnel to your house. My parents told me after that when they got the word that I was wounded, that when the officer and the enlisted personnel was at the house, my dad was at work. My mother called him. See, he knew everything. The first question he asked was, is there a chaplain? If there's a chaplain, I'm KIA. Yeah. But she said no. So that was the good news. I was, I was not killed, that I was wounded. Did they expect you to make it? No. Did the they doctors did not. They expect did you to not. make it? And that was every telegram, ironically, I still have them, my parents kept them, is that I was not expected to survive. What I learned many years later was that from Wenda Vandervander, who became a very dear friend, she was a nurse in Vietnam. She passed away in 2003 but always was a dear friend to both Mary Kay and I. Uh, She always was involved in Veterans Affairs, the Vietnam Veterans Women's Group. And what she explained to me when the first time we met, she said she does not understand why they even attempted to save me, why they even chose to take me into surgery that day. I was called a believer Maxillofacial injuries were very common in Vietnam. And once you had a a severe maxillofacial wound like I had, 
the reason they call us bleeders and the reason that they did not send us to the OR is because they would take all the medical personnel's hours and hours of surgery, blood supplies, medications, and you die anyway. So there was a room that you would be taken to, a nurse would stay with you until you passed. For expectant casualties is what they called it, right? Yes. Because yeah. I expected you to, to pass. Oh, without doubt. Without doubt. So by some grace of God, some triage oh, nurse some, somewhere yeah, someone made the call said, that saved your life. Yeah. And Linda says, I'm, really, I'm even more confused because it's not like you were one of the few brought in that day. They were inundated with wounded. But for some reason, someone in triage said, I'll give you a chance. I wish I knew who that person was. I had no idea. So I learned a lot. About me. She told me that I could have been in that OR for up to 20 hours. And you, yeah. you were out for three days? I was, yeah. I was Where were you at when you woke up? In the NSA Denang Hospital. And how long did you stay there before they sent you back stateside? I stayed there until October 28th, and then they transferred me to Japan Army Hospital. Stayed there for two more weeks, then transferred to Philadelphia Naval Hospital. When you were in Japan, by that point, did they expect you to survive it? Yes. So your parents yes. knew that you'd probably make it at that point? At that point, so yes. So they had a little bit of relief? Before, yes. Before I left Da Nang, I was stable. And that's when they started transitioning me back to, uh, to Philadelphia Naval. But a little sidebar, I did something in Japan that probably shouldn't have done. I could not speak. So if I wanted to communicate... I had to use, remember the, you rode on, you had to erase, like an etch-a-sketch, so you'd write, and then you could lift it up and peel it up, and it would erase. So that's the only way I communicate. I got, and while I was at MSA, I kept asking for a mirror, and they ignored me. They wouldn't even answer me. I got to Japan, and every morning, I would be taken into the physician's office to be examined and um, assessed of how my progress was. <laughs> and... You know, even until I got to Philadelphia, I could not speak. Oh, it was frustrating. So I noticed that while I was in the office there, there was a mirror. I said, okay. I kept asking for a mirror. They wouldn't even acknowledge my question. So early evening, it gets real quiet. Everybody's done eating. I couldn't even eat. I was on an NG tube. I was just fed through an NG tube liquids. So when everyone got done, everything quieted down in the evening. So I got an idea that I wanted to see what happened to me. So I snuck in to the physician's office and got that mirror, went back to my bunk and took my bandage off and looked in that mirror. Well, I understood why they did not want to give me a mirror. The reflection I saw in that mirror was n not of a human face. It was a monster. There was nothing human about it. I'm sitting there looking in the mirror, and next thing I know, this nurse comes over to the bed, and she's screaming at me. And I just looked at her. I think I was in shock. I was just there, but I can remember her screaming at me. Took the mirror, and she yelled for the doctor. He came over, and she explained to him what I just did. He said, okay, I'll, I'll take it from here. I'll never forget that. He pulled the chair up to, next to my bunk, and he looked at me. And his first words were, are you happy? Are you satisfied? Did you achieve what you wanted? And then he got angry with me. And I remember starting to cry. And he sat there with me. Then 
he said to me, let me talk to you about your future and what happened to you. And um, he explained to me what a long road I was going to have surgically, medically, socially, psychologically, every way. So he became very supportive. Then he concluded, and he said, you have any questions? I still can't talk. I'm still in shock, I think. (laughs) Now he calls the nurse over. He said he wants to be independent. It was a lieutenant. He said, lieutenant, he wants to be independent. He wants to take care of himself. Obviously, we're not taking adequate care of him. So bring him the bandages, bring him the four-by-fours, and bring him the, the tape and scissors. You teach him until he knows how to change his own bandages, and then we're done. So I had to learn how to <laughs> change my bandages and do all that. Now, I always watched, I always saw out of the corner of my eye, they were observing me. But he was trying to teach me a lesson. And um, he taught me well. After that, I did become very independent and very determined that somehow I was going to make it through this. And when I got to Philadelphia Naval Hospital, that's when it really began. And I got a lot of support there. Uh, Did your parents come see you when you got to Philly? Oh, my family, yeah. When I arrived in Philly, my parents were there. Uh, my, um, my extended family was... I, I was very fortunate, Nick, because I had a very supportive family. I had friends come to visit me from Turbo Creek. So I was very fortunate that I had a good supportive family and extended family. Yes. What, what was their reaction to your wound? Well, Did here, you take your bandages off for them? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now... I find out about this years later, but my father's orders to my mother was the first time you're going to see him, you do not cry, you do not break down in front of him. We'll do that later, but we have to be strong for him. I don't think either one was prepared to see what they saw, but they were assured that I was going to survive. And that's all that mattered at that time. At any point in the future, did your dad ever, did you ever sit down with him? Was there ever like an, I, I, I told you so, told he, you not to do this? No, he never did. At that did. point, it was over it. He, I, he never ever said, I told you so. But some consolation, I guess, relief is that there was a day, many years later, but I had the opportunity to say to him, I understand. And I think that spoke volumes to him. And he didn't have to say anything more. How long were you in Philly for? I was in Philadelphia from October 27th until April 30th. And then I was transferred to uh, the uh, VA hospital in Oakland. What was it like in Philly? Philly was interesting. I was on a a ward. There were 36 of us on the ward. Maxillofacial burns and amputees. Every one of us. A very bad attitude, very bad attitude. Close as brothers could be, but the attitudes, they were interesting, did not comply with any orders, did not comply with anything they didn't want. Went out at night, doing what you wanted to do, not supposed to be out. I lost count of how many captain's masks I had to go to. You know, leave on a Thursday afternoon because we wanted to go home, didn't check out. Didn't take our meds, just left. Because you're still a Marine at this point. Oh, yeah. Oh, they, we're still active duty. They expected you 
to act with the bearing that a Marine is supposed to act Over with. active duty. And you guys didn't give a shit. None. None. There were amputees, and I'll never forget the group of amputees, and it became the theme of the unit because there was a couple officers that walked in, and every Friday you had inspections. <laughs> what, are we, what are we being inspected for? We're in our pajamas. Where are we going? This young, recent graduate officer walked in to chew the amputees, and he ordered them to stand at attention. How are we going to stand? He yelled at them. They said, and this became the theme. It says, what are you going to do? Send me back to Nam? And that became the theme of the word. Everything was, what are you going to do? Send me back to Nam? Didn't care. In spite of that, our physicians, our nurses, and our corpsmen, second to none, they were oh, incredible caretakers. Incredible. In fact, it got to the point where not the nurses and doctors, but the corpsmen, they became our partners in crime. They would sneak us out at night, go out, do whatever. And we were up on the fourth floor, and they would take us down to the back stairwell, and they would call down to be sure everything was clear. So, you know, the hospital time was very interesting, very unique, but well cared for. So you were there for like six months, then you transferred to Oakland. I did. How long are you in Oakland for? Oakland, I was only there for about a month, uh, and then I would, I would go home, then have to go back for surgeries. I would go home for a few months, then go back in, would try to work, would try to have a job, try to do something. Everything was always disrupted because of surgeries and that. But that, that pretty well resolved right after Mary came. I got married in '70. Um, At what point could you speak again? Oh, that, let's see, my trach was removed probably the first week in November at Philadelphia Naval Hospital because I remember I could speak before Thanksgiving. So, so it wasn't time, allowed to go home, but... By the time you got to Oakland... Oh, yeah, I was fine. Yeah, I didn't have the trach. And speaking, Mary Kay will appreciate this, but speaking, and that... I'm not sure it was speaking, you know, because my tongue was still sewn down to under my chin. I mumbled and yeah. mumbled. It was hard to understand me. So I drooled a lot. How many surgeries did you have to go through? Uh, a total of probably, I think, 26. 26. Mm -hmm. Over how long of a time span? Well, from 68 through 74. And you guys got married in 1970? 70, yes. September. When did you start dating? We started dating in 69, after, after, um, after Christmas. After, after Christmas, Christmas. We, it was ironic because the young lady that introduced us, we met again at her house because she was a good friend of mine and Mary Kay's both. They went to school together, different towns. This friend was a friend of both of us. Uh, and I just happened to be over at her house and Mary Kay was there. So we kind of reunited then, started dating and so Mary Kay has been through all my surgeries with me. Were you self-conscious of your injuries at that point? No, at that time. No? I was in so much denial, Nick. No. 77 is when I finally woke up and realized that I was disfigured, I was disabled. And um, that's when it really came to light. But till then, I don't know, I just lived and enjoyed life, enjoyed my family, worked, went to school, and was in a great denial. Mary Kay, if we can get you on the mic for a minute here. What did you think when you first saw him once he came back? 
I don't remember. I don't know. I was surprised when I first saw him, and I felt bad. But with the attitude that he had, he, he was still the same guy before that he went before he went over. Um, he functioned like nothing had happened. Um, his attitude was nothing really happened. Just a little setback, and he was going to be just fine. So these weren't sympathy dates. No. By any means? I don't think so. I don't think so. We enjoyed each other's company, and like I said, he just had a great attitude at that time. Deteriorated in years later, but probably when PTSD set in. And when when were you married? What month? September. September. So less than two years after you're injured, you were married. Yeah. Yeah. When did you propose? I proposed at her her college graduation. So May of 70? Mm Mm-hmm. Was it? Yeah, it was. So pretty quick turnaround. Very quick. So that's seventy, and so the next seven years are okay. Oh yeah. Oh, the next yeah. seven years, he went to a lot of hospitalization. A I'm lot sorry. of hospitalizations, a but lot. he he we had moved from here to Iowa, and he went to, went to school, Graduated worked full time, went to school full time. Within those seven years, we had two children. Mm-hmm. Life was good out there. Life was good. Had you joined the anti-war movement by that point? I did. When did you join that? I did. Before we got married. So quickly after you oh, got back. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And what was your motivation behind that? Was it? Was this a bad war or was this an unwinnable I just war? Want, I just wanted the brothers home. So you didn't care about the politics? You didn't care didn't about care any about of that? Didn't care about the war. Didn't care about I just wanted the brothers home. That was it. That was it. Wasn't even thinking about was there a purpose of this war? Was uh, Didn't care. Didn't care. Didn't care if it was right, wrong. Didn't care. I wanted my brothers home. What'd your father think of that about you joining the anti-war movement at that point? Oh, he um he understood. So he, he, understood. he was supportive of it. He was supportive. Yeah, he was supportive of that. The irony to that is that, as I mentioned, that he was the commander of the, vever- the veterans of foreign wars. He was a state inspector for the. Vever- he was very involved. <laughs> I could not join the VFW. I could not become a member of the VFW. When I was a child, I grew up in that post with my father, always there. But I returned from Vietnam because I wasn't in a war. I was not eligible to join the VFW. Because it was a conflict? Yes. Is that what they called it? Yeah, it wasn't a war. So When did they start letting non-vets in? Mid-70s. Really? It was that long? Yeah. Yeah, for me, now, I talked to some of my Vietnam vets and they were they said early 70s they, they got into some posts but the irony of that Nick is that when you think about it the World War II veteran is the father of the Vietnam vet right <laughs> so you would think <laughs> well, you'd have a little bit more support from them yeah because there's a lot of talk about how poorly you guys were treated by the civilian population but what goes unsaid a lot of times is how bad you guys were treated by other eras of vets Korean World War II vets generally look down on Vietnam veterans, right? Well... Maybe not in your personal lives, but when it came right. to things like the Legion and the VFW. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, we weren't considered military warrior. And, and I know that happened. I'm not going to justify it because we were rejected by society. But you have to put in perspective of what was going on in this country at the time. There was... Every movement you can think of, there was race movements, equality movements, women's movements. There was so much dysfunction in this country. And I know a lot of my brothers and sisters would probably get upset. But if you look at the underlying motive of the protest, I don't believe they used the 
appropriate platform, nor was there, nor did they approach us appropriately. That if you look at the underlying motive, they wanted that war stopped. Sure. That was the motive. And they got it stopped. That's who got it stopped, the protesters, the anti-war. What was frustrating was that VVAW, Vietnam Veterans Against the War Organization, they failed to recognize us, but we both had the same objective. And the saying came out, you know, is that people confuse the war with the warrior. That's what happened. So you cannot confuse the war with the warrior. We were not responsible for the war. You right. know. Particularly when overwhelming majority of guys were drafted. They didn't oh, volunteer yeah. like you. Most right. people there did right. not want to be there. Their alternative was prison time. Oh, by 70, it was just, that was it. And that's when the entire Vietnam War changed. And that's when a lot of difficulties began. And, and then you saw the inf, uh, influx of drugs and, and just protesting the war themselves and just not following orders and a lot of dysfunction and unrest. I've heard that from a lot of Vietnam vets. Oh, they talk man. about the war as if it's in two parts. There's pre-70 oh. and post-70. Like you look at pictures oh. of, of Marines and soldiers in mm -hmm. 1968, mm -hmm. clean-shaven, haircuts, mean yeah. business. You look at guys in 70, 71. Oh, yeah. That's when they have the peace sign on their helmet. They're unshaven. Right. Their weapons nowhere to be found. It's right. dirty. They're smoking dope. Because yep. yep. they were just tired. They didn't want to. They were done. They were and who done. who can blame they, them, honestly? No, absolutely not. They were done. They just, you know, they knew what those before them encountered. And they also recognized the fact that VVAW, there must be a reason here as a VVAW, and they talked to their brothers, and they just got to the point to hell with this, you know, is that what am I, I'm not, I'm not going to die for this. And they were right. Why die? What was the cause? What was the purpose? So everything was good until around 77. 77. And Mary Kay, this one's for you again, because I feel like, you probably noticed something was wrong before he noticed something was wrong. Do you think that's fair? I think so. He started being off by himself a lot. He was a lot, he was unhappy. I, I, he couldn't figure out why. He's short-tempered, had a lot of problems with everything around him. I can truthfully say that the only part of his life that, that he seemed happy with in was with his children. That never uh, came across as, as any problem at all. He was always good with the boys. And he was also involved with the boys a lot, but um, in every other part of his life, he kind of took himself out of. So the one constant, he was always a good dad. Yeah. Was he always a good husband? Um, there were some difficult times there. He was always a loyal husband, but um, there were some really difficult times there when uh, I didn't understand him. I didn't know what was going on. I don't really think there was much research done in, in the problems that Vietnam veterans were having after they came home until later years. Um, and it's a common theme. Yeah, and it's it not just it's not just that war. It's been with all of them. We come back. Like I was married uh, during my second tour to Afghanistan. I came back. Um, and I honestly, it, I can't speak for everyone, but I've got to think it was harder on you, harder on my wife than it was on me or Andy. Because we knew, deep down, we knew what was wrong you had no idea, and you just wanted to fix it, but you had no idea right, how to fix right. it. Right, I had no idea. And we knew you couldn't fix it. Right. I had two young children. I was trying very hard to keep a family together, and that was just taking so much of me to, uh, uh, to try and figure it out. Um, I don't know how any warrior can come back and not there not be something going on. I don't know. Was there ever any sort of ultimatum, like, 
you go figure yourself out? No, I don't think so. He did, Andy did realize that he did need help, and he went for help. I don't remember what year that was. Oh, I'm sorry, 78. In 78. He did did get help with it, and he got help from a wonderful uh, psychiatrist. Lifesaver. Psychologist. That's right, Dr. Frieden's psychologist, who helped him out tremendously, and then helped after starting Andy with treatment. He helped both of us out and eventually became a very good friend. I'm a colleague of mine. Yes. What was it that, because I'm sure for a few years you felt a little off, couldn't put your finger on it, something's not right. When did it come to a boil and you were like, all right, something is wrong with me? 77, 77, 1977. I was working for the VA up till then. What were you doing for the VA? I was a um, benefits counselor and education specialist at the regional office at that time. Was there any particular moment or incident? Or was it just a culmination and you were just one day? It was just a, 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 a continuous decline and just feeling insecure, feeling numb. That was the main feeling. I felt numb. I no longer felt a part of anything, anyone. And I will say, you know, our divorce rate among Vietnam vets was just astronomical. It was unreal. For me to be so fortunate to have a woman support me, stay with me, and just get through all those turmoil with me. You know, not many did that. But 77, I just just was not able to cope with anything. Didn't want to work, didn't want to do anything. I thought that uh, working at the Veterans Administration, I blamed a lot of it on that because I, I... assumed that that was bringing back memories consistently, like every day that was bringing back so many memories. And I, and I blamed the VA for, I did not want him working there. But as it turned out, that's not what, that's not what was going on. It was twofold. A couple events occurred. In 1978, we have to keep in mind that PTSD didn't exist. So no one knew what not only me, but thousands of us were experiencing suffering from. I was fortunate to come across Dr. Arnold Friedman, who was the chief psychologist at the VA in Oakland. And just like that triage person in Vietnam, he decided that he was going to take a chance with me. And he worked with me three days a week. And he didn't know what he was working with. He didn't know what the problem was. But he just kept working with me. You know, there was depression. There was anxiety. There was neurosis. That he didn't know what was causing it. He did not have a label for it. He did not have a diagnosis. All he knows is I was dysfunctional. He worked with me for nine months, nine months like that. And he got me to realize that I was experiencing difficulty coping with my war experience. And so I'll never forget, I went to him in the winter of, what was it, 79. And I said, I'm going to apply to graduate school. He said, big mistake. You'll never, ever be able to tolerate it. You'll never be able to function at that level. Well, that June I did. I threw myself into it. And just at that time, Mary Kay's right, the VA did elicit a lot of memories 
So it brought back a lot. It brought in some negatives. But ironically, it's what turned my life around. Because when I went to graduate school, that's when, in 1979, for the first time, delayed stress syndrome, before it was known as post-traumatic stress disorder, delayed stress syndrome was finally diagnosed. And that's when I started working for one of the first vet centers in the country in Pittsburgh as a counselor. What, what was your, what were you going to graduate school for? Uh, psychology. Psychology. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I was, I was a psychologist. Yeah, my master's. So and is that, you knew that's what you wanted to do? You wanted to work with other vets? I did. I did. And, and then I, I really got involved in that, worked at the vet center. I'll tell you, to this day, they treated me and benefited me more than I ever benefited them. I learned so much from them. It really changed my life. Then... How, how long had the vet centers been around when you started working there? It just opened, 1979. So it's brand new. Brand new. And how many were there nationally? Uh, at that time, well, totally there became 172, but there were only a few at that time. Just a handful. Just a handful. They started out because what happened, Nick, was that, you know, Vietnam vets didn't want to go to the Veterans Administration for any care. The VA didn't want us there. That's how the vet centers finally came into existence is that they became storefronts because the VA didn't want us in their system. The Vietnam vet didn't want in their system, so they opened these storefronts. And it was so archaic at that time, Nick, is that anyone could walk into our vet center, didn't have to show a DD-214, any proof of service, anything. We treated them. We provide service, whatever. Did we get burned sometime? Yeah. But we got a lot of vets in at the time, and that was what the purpose was. How many counselors did you have there? We had four. And do you, who were they? It was you? It was me, Dave McPeak, Arlo Woods, and then there was a, a team leader who the counselors were us three. Arlo Woods, uh, who became a regional manager, Dave McPeak, who just retired, and then myself. And you worked with Mike Flournoy at some point, right? Mike joined several years later. We never worked together, but he he start, he got involved with the one that opened in McKeesport, which is now in White Oak. But Mike, yeah, Mike was a counselor. Yeah, he got involved. And you were all Vietnam vets. All Vietnam combat vets. That was it. That was our that was our only way that we can get trust, and it was difficult to get any trust because they would come in, but they would find out we were employed by the VA. So then there was that issue. I adjusted that way from 78 to 79 and got involved. But what happened in that interim was is that we focused on my war experiences. I came to learn through the group I was facilitating. I had probably 15 men in my group, combat vets. And I observed that those who were severely wounded did not participate. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, you know, they didn't talk about the war experiences. I needed to get them integrated in therapy. So I started conducting individual therapy with them. Well, here we go. They taught me again. The war experiences were not the problem they were encountering. It was their wounds. It was their disability. It was their loss. War experiences, as traumatic as they were, were secondary. So now we had to treat the disability, that loss, before we could then 
begin treating the war experiences. And what I learned from them as we worked together is that I learned that losing a part of your body, you need to grieve. It's like losing a loved one. If you don't grieve, then you don't have closure. You cannot adjust and cope with that loss. So they literally, what I would do with them is we have a funeral for that part of their body they lost. Once they were able to resolve those grieving issues and adjust to their losses, then they could reintegrate into the group then deal with their PTSD. So I'm going to ask you this question, but I'll ask Mary Kay first. Mm -hmm. at, at what point did you feel like the guy you married was back? Jeez. I would probably say in the early 80s. So your kids were 80s. five, six, seven years old, something no. like that? No, they were older. So did you feel relief? Yes. That you didn't have to yes. keep your family together anymore? Yes. You could just mm -hmm. relax and I did. I did. enjoy life? So. It was, life became a lot easier. Andy was traveling at that time. You're traveling to West Virginia. Not that time. What year? I don't remember what year that was. Not to 80, 85. Okay. Yeah, life did become a lot easier uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, we were still deal, dealing with the disability. Oh, yeah. We still deals with the disability, but uh, that wasn't anything significant like what we had already been through. But you were happy by this point. Oh, yeah. Everything yeah. was hunky-dory. Everything For was the good. most part. Mm -hmm. yeah. Those years in between, though, must have seemed like forever. They were, those years in between were difficult. We did, have good, we did have good times also. Sure. There were just periods where Andy was um, tough to deal with. But we were raising the boys, and a lot of time was concentrated on the boys. Uh, we were very act active with their sports and stuff like that. So, and it was a very busy life. And... There wasn't a whole lot of time to think about what what was wrong. Right. It was a matter of taking care of children, getting kids off to off to school, and doing everything that needed to be done about that. Um, and he, when he went to get help, when he met with Doctor Friedman, that that's when the big relief started, because I felt like there was somebody out there. So that you was could see a noticeable change. Yeah. Took a long time, but at least I I felt like somebody out there understands what we are going through and is going to help us. Right. There wasn't like this hopeless feeling like right. you, you knew like, okay, right. we're getting close to a finish line here in some sort of way. Right. Now that the boys are older, would you ever talk to them? Do they look back and recognize when they were younger? Like, hey, there was something off about that at I some point? never really sat down and talked to them about it. But yes, they did realize that something was wrong. I think when they were teenagers is when it hit that something was off. Um but it never changed anything with, right. with how they related to, to their dad. They weren't worried about you or anything. They were just like, there was... They were so young. They are like, well, something was different, but he's, yeah. he's all right now. Yeah, they were so young. They were so young. They were young, and, and they also realized that dad had a disability. They didn't realize that there was all these other things going on. And they, dad was yeah. in and out of the hospital often. Yeah. And they seemed to deal with that all like oh. it was just routine. So you were at college. Where did you go to school? Mount Aloysius. Mount Aloysius, when he was in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So you were a student. What did you think about the war when you were in school? I didn't have a whole lot of opinion about it. I didn't ag agree with what was going on. I didn't uh, understand it. Um, but you knew people like Andy, so you separated right. this, the war from the soldier. Right. How do you feel about the war now after seeing the grief it's caused after all these years to so many people? I think it was a total waste of our, our uh, 
so many lives. So many lives were lost, and it makes me very angry that our country would put us into that because I don't, I don't see anything that was ever accomplished. It's all one country now, and, and I just I don't think it was a, a huge loss of life, huge loss of money. It divided this country terribly. I just think it just wasn't worth it. And so speaking of divided, things are pretty divided as we sit here in 2018. Does this even come close to 1968? At times, yes, it does. Yes, it does. I think a lot of the anger that's going on in this country right now is, is very close to what was going on in the 60s. I think us being involved in wars that, that were not accomplishing anything uh, is very close to the 60s. There was a lot going on at that time, but there's a lot going on now, too. But people were more unified. Well, that's the thing, right? So we pulled through the 60s and early 70s, and we came out better for it, I think. Much, much. But there was people unified. Yeah. We don't have an administration that is backing us up on what's going on in this country right now. Would you feel like we did then? I, I mean, Johnson had flaws, right? But, like, yes. he wasn't a bigot, you know? <laughs> right. Like, no, he was right. a lot of things, but bigot he was not. No. There was still, there was, that's, I guess that's kind of the thing. So while Vietnam is horrendous, all this is going on, like, you still got the civil rights movement happening. You still have the, the right. passage oh, of civil rights so act. Much. Like, there's good work so being much. done. Yeah, Today, absolutely. we're missing that, I feel like. The women's that. movement, you know? Oh, you no, know, they got their right rights. Now, too. We still yeah. have a women's movement got, going yeah, on. Yeah, but they got Which is crazy that we still have a women's movement going on. That's another thing that, that uh, we were just talking the other day, uh, how it, it went on in the back in the 60s. And it's go, it's happening again. And we're having to revisit this stuff yes. because apparently and that's a shame. men are dogs and we don't learn lessons very well. No. No, no you just have a new generation of dogs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Our fathers, well, I guess each year we're getting a little better, right? Like it's not yes. as bad as it Hopefully. was. No. Hopefully. But we don't, we don't have that administration. When you mentioned Lyndon Johnson, at least he was a, re, a well-respected man. Right. He may not have made the right decisions as far as war is concerned, but at least he well, was respected by the majority of the country. Well, and that's another frustration I have is that, you know, not to defend President Johnson, he inherited the war. See, we do not... We fail to recognize in this country that John F. Kennedy was responsible for the Vietnam War. Without a doubt. Not Johnson. Eisenhower, Westmoreland, and Kennedy escalated that war and were primarily responsible for that war. Johnson, from the day he inherited, did all in his power to withdraw. Now that everything's declassified, the tapes yeah. have been released. You hear yeah. the conversations with yeah. him and McNamara. Yes. And in no uncertain terms, he goes, Bobby, you figure out a way to get us out of this fucking yep. war. Yep. I don't want to be involved I, anymore. And what does McNamara go to do? Oh. Gets mm -hmm. us deeper and deeper in. Escalates and escalates and commits and commits. So at that point, like, I feel almost, like Johnson was played, it feels like. Oh, big time. Played by the generals. Oh, played yeah. by the Secretary of Defense. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, he was yeah. the only one. Yeah. Because he said it, you could hear him on multiple tapes. He's like, I don't want to be involved in another war in Asia, boys. I don't want to exactly do this. Right. Get us out of there. Exactly Get us out of there right now. For you decades, got Tonkin, yeah. you got all that foolishness that oh, goes yeah. on. Yeah. John Kennedy is on a pedestal and will never be blamed for much. Yeah, that's well, it. yeah, that's what happens you get murdered, yeah. right? Yeah. Like yeah. Uh, yeah. Lincoln gets a pass yeah. on yeah. a lot of stuff, too. Slavery, you know? yeah. yeah. Yeah, like he gets yeah. a pass. He, right. I'm from Alabama, so I learned I about know, this you stuff. Know about like that. he, uh, yeah. Once he emancipated the slaves, his plan was to put them on a boat, send them somewhere else. Yeah. 
since he was murdered, right. we don't we don't like to view him through that negative lens. Are we revisiting that too? <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 that, that's Speaking it, of revisiting, it, yes, you guys are getting ready to go to Vietnam here in a few months. We are, and I'm sure you have both have very different feelings about it. How do you feel about? Have you been before? Mm-mm. How do you feel about seeing the place that you've heard about for so long? I get chills even telling somebody that I am going to Vietnam because the word Vietnam was has been for many years a dirty word to me. Sure. But I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I want to see where the mountains were and, and uh, the everything that's over there. We are, we'll be visiting close to where Andy was wounded. And I don't know how I'll feel once I'm over there, but I'm anxious to do it. Good anxious? Good anxious. What about you, Andy? I'm looking forward to it, uh, Mick. Uh, Obviously, I think Mary Kay and I have different objectives from going. I feel somewhat of an obligation to return just to honor those brothers that I was with and for all the 58,273 that were killed. Do you feel like you need any closure or do no. you have closure? I have closure. So this is just a it, It's just more a out of honor, respect, and dignity for my brothers and also, it's it's my 50th anniversary. Yeah. And, you know... And people, Significant milestone. Yes, very much so. And, you know, and a lot of my brothers and sisters don't agree with returning, you know, but war is an individual experience. I mean, we go together, but, you know, we all respond to it differently. And those who never desire to return, they're not wrong. There's no right or wrong right. with this, I don't think. There's no right or wrong. It's my 50th anniversary. And how I put it in perspective, Nick, is that, you know, all of us, our life is a book of chapters, okay? Not every chapter in our book is good. We have chapters that are good, bad, and ugly. And for me to just not recognize my Vietnam time, I can't remove that chapter from my life. That is a part of my life. And truthfully, good or bad or indifferent, it has molded my life. Overall, not necessarily, you know, the, the disability and the wounds and hospitalizations, but it, it's made me the person I am. And it's done me a lot of good. It's provided me a lot of strength in that. So again, it's one of those ugly chapters in life, but we all have them. Right. And I cannot dismiss it. I cannot deny that that chapter, I cannot tear that chapter out of my book. It's real. It happened. It's there. I think Vietnam was a horrid, horrid place years ago, and um, it caused a lot of difficulties in our lives. It would be nice to see that country as a beautiful country, which I understand that it is now. I think that would be very settling. I think it would be very interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, Nick, we talk, I, I mentioned to you that what Mary Kay was so eloquently stating about our difficult times is that that's my survival guilt. You know, there's survival guilt that you and I as warriors have with the loss of our brothers and sisters. I've come to terms with that. My survival guilt is I survived, but as a result of that, I imposed pain, suffering, and burden upon my parents, my extended family, my wife, my children, that's a survival guilt that I struggle with there. And I try to look out, okay, if I wouldn't have survived, would have been better. Well, 
then my loved ones would have had a life of grief that they probably would have never been able to bring closure with and, and cope with. At least they have had me return and be able to share their life with me and me with them. Your that, family, your parents saw you injured, but they also saw you yeah. married. They saw you, your children, your, they saw their grandchildren, and they saw you leading a very productive, functional right. life. So That's a good point. And then that's, you know, they, they, you heard them at one time, but yeah. you know, they also saw you in very good times. Yeah, and that's why I, as far as being, being killed in action, that would not resolve for that. America is absolutely correct. You know, they, they've had me back in their life. They've, we've shared our lives together. It's okay. It's okay. You know? Well, and also, you work in the vet center. Other people are better for you have been around. I hope so. Undoubtedly. Yeah. Two final questions. Sure. One, hypothetically, or I don't know, maybe not hypothetically, you're in Vietnam, you're running into some f- civilians, you're talking, chatted up, you find out they were Viet Cong or NVA. What are your feelings towards them? Very open, Nick. Um, are you willing to shake hands, have a beer? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you hold I, any resentment I speak only from them? A, I'm sorry? Do you hold any resentment against them? I do not. I, do, I speak only for myself, sure. not for my brothers and sisters. How I've come to closure with that is that, for me, not to politicize it, but to me, it was a artificially created enemy. I don't perceive my enemy in Vietnam. I can't say the same for this country. And I'm not talking about civilians. Sure. I'm talking about this government. You know, were they my enemy? Yes. Do I have negative feelings about them killing and wounded my brothers and sisters? Absolutely. Do you empathize with their negative feelings? I absolutely do. And maybe it's a little different experience for me, Nick. In 1981, I had the privilege and honor to do a documentary with the British Broadcasting Company. And they interviewed American Vietnam veterans, and they interviewed Viet Cong and North Vietnamese Army regulars. The conclusion to that documentary was really interesting, is that the majority of the so-called enemy NVA and VC have no hatred and animosity towards us. They feel as though they were victims of their corrupt government. I concur. Not their corrupt government, ours. Sure. I struggle with justifying war. It would have been easier for you if there was a Hitler in Vietnam, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, If you have someone who intentions are to destroy the world and all the human beings, yes, absolutely. Then you have to defend humanity, for sure. You have to defend humanity. And hindsight being 2020, in retrospect, Turns out, despite what we were told at the time, Ho Chi Minh wasn't that guy. Ho Chi Minh he wasn't, wasn't that Hitler. guy. He wasn't that He guy. wasn't trying to just watch the word burn. He just had some different views and beliefs than us. That's all. So Could have been resolved, right? They need to resolve it on their own. I, 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 we do not have to police the world and impose our ideology on the world. We're not perfect. Ain't so, that the truth? You know, we're not perfect. That's certainly a truth about war. We're not perfect. We're not perfect. We're not perfect. 
perfect. So, yeah, Hitler would be one that I would say, yeah, you have to defend yourself against, and that those are the those are the evil people trying to destroy. That's one way I could justify the war. But to engage in a war, just to engage for the power of our ideology upon others, or for economic reasons, no, no. Life is too precious. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Longest War. If you like what you heard, please be sure to rate us and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, or your favorite podcasting app. It happened, believe me, I was there.